Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we call the gospel, the message of good news, which the Apostle Paul tells us. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, all this in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared. He appeared to Peter and to hundreds at different times. Lord, we have evidence of his coming, his dying, and his being raised through the testimony of many and for the preservation of your word, which records these things. We cherish your word. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son. And then, Lord, you had apostles who wrote it down for us, and it's come to us today. We have so much to give thanks to you for, for a multitude of Bible translations, uh, Lord, for amazing help in studying the Bible at our fingertips through the Internet, Lord, for the timeless gift of the church and for people, for fellow saints for the preaching of your word, for the singing of your songs, and for the celebration of ordinances or symbols which demonstrate, which picture for us what Jesus did for us. Lord, we thank you. For that, we look forward to partaking of the supper that Jesus gave us later this morning. We pray now you'd be glorified as we open his word and seek to see him more to believe like the man who jesus healed we say we believe but help our unbelief lord grant us more faith more assurance more joy in believing today because you're good because that's your plan and because you promised that you would we pray in jesus saving name amen you can be seated Well, normally we have a special Lord's Supper service every uh, last Wednesday of the month. And um, the reason we do this, the reason we have a special Lord's Supper service set apart from other services in the church is that we want to focus on it. We don't want to treat it like it's a tack on. I don't know what kind of church tradition you grew up in, but the one I grew up in treated the Lord's Supper like a tack on, unfortunately. We could have a sermon on the mark of the beast... And then abruptly, it would make this transition to the Lord's Supper. And, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, the key passage would be read. Um, a deacon would pray for the bread. A deacon would pray for the cup. And we partake, and that's it. Uh, there was no teaching on it. So what we do as a church is we have a, a service devoted to thinking and singing and uh, preaching on redemption, blood, forgiveness, mercy, his love, Some of these services and some of the sermons aren't particularly focused on the Lord's Supper. Not like every message is about the Lord's Supper, um, but they're all about redemption, all about God's grace to us in Christ, which then, I think, sets us up appropriately for um, partaking of that meal in a thoughtful and careful and even purposely prolonged sort of way. That's why we have it every last Wednesday of the month. We didn't have it the last Wednesday of this month, though. We had an elders Q&A in its place. Uh, And then we decided we would do this starting now, once a year, do a Lord's Supper service in a Sunday morning time. 
Um, and one of the reasons for doing that is to strongly encourage you to come and to make Wednesday nights with us uh, over the Lord's Supper a priority. We think that the Lord's Supper is a priority, should be a priority anyway, and we know that we live in a society, in an American Christian culture of a society that doesn't think that the Lord's Supper is too important. I wonder, what, what are your thoughts about the Lord's Supper? Is it this sort of weird thing that, you know, it's like an old family tradition? We kind of can't get out of it, but we're not sure why we ever started it. What do you think it does? What do you think it accomplishes? I mean, if you could wad it up and ball it up there and throw it in the trash, maybe not in those strong of terms, maybe you wouldn't want to tell Jesus that you want to wad it up, but, but if you can wad it up and throw it in the trash without him being mad at you, would you? Would you? Well, it's a priority in Scripture, and we don't believe that Scripture is this archaic thing that eventually loses relevance. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2 to start. Acts chapter 2. We'll get to 1 Corinthians 11 in just a bit, but I want to see some groundwork here in Acts chapter 2, a passage that's really, it's kind of the birth of the church in a sense, and you can see the things that are primary in the church's practice. Acts chapter 2, Peter has just preached a great message, and many have been converted. Verse 41 tells us that. It says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now get this, here's what they did. They devoted themselves to four things. Apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Now, if you think that the breaking of bread here is just sort of meals, get-togethers, fellowship, I think that wouldn't be right. Here's why. The word before was fellowship, right? If fellowship comes before breaking of bread, then breaking of bread isn't just meals, because first-century Jewish folk would definitely think of fellowship as meals, that would have been front and center, centerpiece of what it means to be in fellowship with people and with families. Meals, and that's not just a, a cultural observation, that's a biblical dynamic. You see, eating together is the sign of acceptance and sharing life. If that's what fellowship means, then it's redundant to put after it, and meals. So I don't think breaking of bread here is meals. I think breaking of bread here is the special meal we call the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to these things. And then it says, verse 23, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe. Isn't that really what we're after? We want to be awed, right? We want to be awed by God when we're thinking right. And here they're awed. And of course, not surprisingly, they're awed in part by Wonders and signs, it says. Miracles. Powerful workings of God. They're awed by the powerful working of God in miraculous ways. But notice that awe here is sandwiched between wonders and signs and four fairly simple staples of the church. Teaching. Getting together. Lord's Supper. And prayer. We all want to be awed. There's no denying we would be awed by 
powerful, undeniable, miraculous happenings. Are you awed by doctrine? Are you awed by fellowship? Do you awe the Lord's Supper? Are you awing prayer? Oh, such simple things. I wonder, are you awing especially the breaking of bread this morning? Are you awed really by what it shows, not just the bread itself, not just the bread in the cup, but are you awed by the Christ of the cup? That's Acts chapter 2. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 being the most thorough teaching of the Lord's Supper that we have in Scripture. And so it's good to go there for a, what really is a 101 kind of message about the Lord's Supper. We're due for that. Because our Lord's Supper services are often about this part of the cross and this part of his work of redemption and how forgiveness happens here in this passage. And we do the Lord's Supper at those meetings and we talk a little bit about what it is and what it's for. But I think we're overdue perhaps for a reminder about what it is and why it's important. Again, not least for those of you who right now, if you're honest, you'd have to say, treated as a pretty optional part of Christian living and your church life. 1 Corinthians 11 encourages us in a lot of different ways. It's a long passage. Let me read it in total here, starting in the middle. Verse 17, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but for, and, and about the other things, which we don't know about. We don't know what they are. He says, I will give directions 
when I come. Well, there's a lot there. I want to give you ten different aspects of this important passage. Ten different aspects that we see here about the Lord's Supper. You can follow along on the sermon notes page you have on the back of your bulletin. You'll notice there that what we need to start is with the background of the Lord's Supper. The background is Passover. In verse 23, Paul says that this happened the night that Jesus was betrayed. He gave this meal the night he was betrayed. Now, Paul doesn't say this, but we know from Luke and the other gospel accounts that this was Passover. They were celebrating the Passover together when Jesus gave these instructions to do a remembrance meal of him. And it's not insignificant that this happens on Passover. If you don't know, Passover was a memorial meal commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery, book of Exodus. And God delivered them by telling them to put blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their house. And then that night, when his, when his judgment came through town, it would pass over, hence the name, the houses that had blood on the doorposts. It was a, a symbol of, of sacrifice, a symbol of substitution, that someone died in their place. Israelites better than the Egyptians, still had sin, still deserved God's wrath and judgment. And unless there be a substitute, there is a judgment owed. But with a substitute, symbolically speaking, in the Old Testament there, that Passover meal pictured what was to come. That one day there would be a Passover lamb who was slain. And through faith, it's as if he puts the blood of his sacrifice on the doorposts of our hearts. And God's wrath passes over. So Passover was this memorial meal commemorating Israel's deliverance, and they celebrated it yearly as God told them to do. As Jesus celebrates it with the disciples, it's a transitional meal now, right? It's both the last Passover, because Jesus is going to be the true Passover, And it's also the first Lord's Supper. It's the Last Supper and the first Lord's Supper. It's the first of these meals like we're going to do today. So a lot of similarities between these two meals. The key to the similarity between these two meals is that there's a sacrifice and that there's mercy and that there is covenant, which leads us to the second part of our outline here, the covenant of the Lord's Supper is a new covenant. Jesus says in verse 25, well, Paul quotes Jesus here, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this new covenant was promised back in the old covenant, Jeremiah 31. Think of old covenant, new covenant, just in terms of, in some ways, Old Testament, New Testament. And in Hebrews, you see that distinction. There's the old covenant, and it had these features to it. And, but now there's this new covenant that has these features to it. But if you go back to Jeremiah 31, we see some of the features of the new covenant promised long before it ever came to pass. Let me read a section of this promise in Jeremiah 31. I want you to notice the emphasis in these promises on God doing this. I will, I will, I will is the phrase That keeps getting repeated. God says, Behold, the days are coming 
when I will make a new covenant. I will make this new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. Not on cold tablets of stone outside of them, like it was in the old covenant. I'll put it right in them. What Calvin said is our desire box, our hearts. He writes it right there. He tattoos it on our feelings and on our will. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer will anyone need to teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. What's that phrase mean? It means that everyone in this covenant is in the covenant, and they're his. And you don't need to say to those in this covenant, Hey, you should know the Lord. Hey, you should seek him while he may be found. Everyone in this covenant is, we would say, saved, forgiven, reconciled, restored. Not so in the old covenant. You had some in, but not totally in. In by birth, but not in savingly. Not so in the new. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You hear? I will. I will. I will. They shall. They shall. They shall. His work, and it makes it sure. It makes it undeniably certain. That's the basis for this meal that we're going to partake of and Jesus gave the disciples long ago. It's a new covenant meal. It's a, it's a celebration of what was promised long ago and has come in Christ. It's the cup of the new covenant in his blood. It reminds us then that he will do it. and He has done it, right? It reminds us that the hope lies not within ourselves, not in more willpower, not in some sort of moral reform program. The hope lies in Christ. God said, I will, I will, I will. Trust him. The third thing we see here is symbolism in the Lord's Supper. It's a symbolism of death. Verse 26, Paul says that we proclaim the Lord's death when we do the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't believe that the bread and the wine become his body and his blood. You might know the phrase hocus pocus. It comes by virtue of mocking the belief that it, the bread and the wine change mystically into the body and the blood of Christ. We don't believe that. We believe it's just bread. It's just juice in this case, not wine, but close enough. It's just new juice, I mean new wine. But we're supposed to look at it and look through it, right? It doesn't do anything. These elements don't do anything apart from faith. So we take them and we look at them and we don't just see bread. We see something more through the eyes of faith. Spurgeon put it like this. He said that the bread and wine are spectacles. They're glasses. And he asks, how do you use spectacles to look at no, to look through them, to use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles, we should. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. That's how we approach the Lord's Supper. 
We see in it a symbolism of death. He died. He died once for all. It's not an ongoing sacrifice. He died and said, it's finished. So it's a visible, even graphic emblem of our eternal hope. It's broken body and spilled blood. It's a violent picture, in a sense. It's, it's not just nice, sort of eating bread, drinking a cup. That's, that's nice, it's safe. It's violent, it's graphic. And it reminds us that we could not be saved by something prettier. You could not be saved by something softer or gentler or nicer. It's not G-rated. It's violent. It's grotesque. Because sin is grotesque. And nothing less than his death would do for us to be free. Again, it's a picture of substitution. His life and his death in our place. Which again draws us outside of ourselves as we partake of this. We look to this historic finished work sitting right before us in emblem form, right? He's not here. This is just bread. Why is he not here? Because his work is done. He's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. That's the symbolism. Death. Death in our place. Fourth, let's talk about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The purpose is twofold in this passage anyway. It's remembrance, verse 25, and proclamation, verse 26. You see, remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It implies that the need for the Lord's Supper is that there'd be forgetfulness. We're forgetful people. It's not that we forget that Jesus died. It's not that we forget probably even that we've been redeemed. I I haven't recently woken up in the morning and went, oh yeah, I forgot I'm not going to hell. But we forget the implications of the gospel all the time. We live sometimes under the guilt like we are going to hell tomorrow, right? Right? We forget the horror of the cross. We forget the extent of the problem that warranted the horror of the cross. We forget the victory, the finality of the cross and the resurrection. We forget the results and implications that come from being sons and daughters. The theme of remembering is such a rich one in the Bible. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's piggybacking on a lot of remembrance language from the Old Testament. The Old Testament kept saying, don't forget, remember. God was saying to Israel, remember how I rescued you in Egypt. Remember how I saved you with an outstretched arm. And when he says that, he's not just saying, don't forget the facts. But he's saying, keep it at the forefront of your mind and keep it deep within your heart. The Hebrew word usually translated remember in the Old Testament is defined by one Hebrew lexicon like this. Look, look at, listen to how many angles to this rich word there are. It's to call to mind. It's to rehearse. 
It's to consider, to ponder, to confess, to celebrate, to remind others, to record, to affect your present feelings. So Jesus is piggybacking on all that kind of rich remembrance language so often repeated in the Old Testament. And he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the cross like that. I'll just remember that I died. I'll just remember that it was on Friday. Remember like you were there. Put it before you. Be mentally meditative about it and let it be emotionally moving for you. It's remembrance, but it's also proclamation that God has given us the Lord's Supper. A proclamation. Verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death when you do this. How? I mean, is it just referring to the preacher proclaiming the Lord's death before we partake? Or are we at some point supposed to turn to each other and say, he really died. Take a drink. Well, I think what it's saying is we proclaim it in symbolic form. We proclaim it in an action, not so much in a word. And we proclaim the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper in one sense to the world. This is our meal. This is our hub. This is the thing we're banking on, right? This is the thing. It's the emblem. It's our ring, our wedding ring in a sense of who we are and where our hope lies. It's a proclamation to other Christians so we don't do this alone. We do it with each other and we do it for each other. And we do it to ourselves. We proclaim his death to ourselves as well. We say that a lot around here. We're to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? And here's a perfect way in which we preach the gospel to ourselves, both in word and in symbol. So in a symbolic way, even more than a symbolic way, in explicitly verbal ways, these truths are proclaimed to us in the supper. In Luke's account, here are the words of Jesus. My body broken for you. Okay, here the glorious gospel words of that ring out loud and clear. The bread and the cup say and sing my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. It's the cup of the new covenant. So believe and rest and rejoice. Come and keep coming. Hear the loud and broad invitation of Isaiah 55. Come. Why will you seek satisfaction in these other things that don't satisfy? Why do you spend your money on things that don't fulfill? Come to me, buy my wine, my milk, my honey, without money and without price. Drink and be satisfied. Isaiah 55 says, we're all restlessly by nature looking for satisfaction and willing to spend big time to get it. And it doesn't satisfy. But in Christ, there is supreme satisfaction, ultimately leading to eternal satisfaction. And the only condition in getting this kind of satisfaction is that we come hungry and that we come acknowledging that we're poor, without money without price. Hear those glorious, 
gospel words ring out in your ears as we eat and drink and live. The Lord's Supper reminds us that salvation is him giving life. The opposite of salvation is death. And in Christ there's life and sustenance and more than sustenance, satisfaction. And that's why we eat it. Just like we need food, just like we need drink, or we'll die. It's a reminder. Give me Christ, or I die. I need him, or I'll perish. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The fifth thing we should consider is the commandment of the Lord's Supper. The commandment of the Lord's Supper is pretty, yet subtle, and also bold. Verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. Be easy to read through that verse and miss the fact that's a direct command. Do this. I think that means that a a church should treat the Lord's Supper as a priority, and individual Christians in that church should treat it as a priority. We should treat it as a priority because we need it. We've already said we're forgetful people. And we need to battle this from multiple angles. We don't just need Bible reading to remember like we should remember him. We don't just need prayer to remember him like we should remember him. We need this thing that is the remembrance meal. We need it. We should treat it as a priority because done rightly, it has a unifying effect. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But we should also treat it with great priority because Jesus commands us to. He commanded that his disciples should do this. And the New Testament modeled its central place in the life of the church like we saw from Acts 2 and we could see in other places as well. We should trust God's commandment to do this because of this principle. God loves to bless what he prescribes for us, not the things we invent on top of what he's already given us. We don't put our trust in horses or princes or kings like Psalms say. And we don't put our trust in technology, in glitz, in glamour, in more moving strobe lights and smoke machines. We, we don't put our trust in the cleverness of a, a new sermon series with a matching t-shirt. We trust that God blesses the simple things. Oh, you know, we use PowerPoint, right? We, we've got speakers, but we're not Amish. We're pretty far from Amish. But what do we trust? What if the lights went out? A while back we had a service where we thought up until about two minutes before that we weren't going to have any power. There was some question, are we going to cancel or not cancel? And I basically said, over my dead body, are we going to cancel this? We don't need the power. I'll just yell, right? We, we, don't, we can do this. I mean, if anything, we'll do it just to say that we can, darn it. We'll do it to, to testify that, that we can do church without the lights and without the PowerPoint and without a microphone. What do we trust? 
We need to trust what God has prescribed for us because he loves to bless the simple things, even the seemingly silly things seem silly to us. Things like preaching. It doesn't make sense in our day where most of us don't finish a web article that we read. When's the last time you finished an article that you found on the web? Oh, you just read a little bit, right? You get to a boring sentence and click. That's it. Find something else. There's a lot on here, you know? In that kind of age, someone getting up before you and talking, one person talking for 45 minutes without, a, without even a, a sock puppet. Is that going to work? Humanly speaking, No. We believe that God chooses to bless the things that he's prescribed for us. Even when we don't see it, sometimes when we don't feel it, we trust it. Do this, he says. Sixth, we should talk about the frequency of the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a weird phrase here. Paul just says vaguely, as often as you do it, in verse 25. So it's clear he's not explicit about how often this ordinance should be done. If he had a clear conviction, if this was a, a universal principle, the Lord's Supper must be done weekly or daily or monthly or quarterly or yearly. All those options have been explored in church history. If Paul had a conviction about one of those, he probably would have put it right there, right? Instead, he says, as often as you do it. Now, it may be that they did this, the Corinthian church, whenever they came together as a church, as a whole church, which... I assume it would be weekly. In Acts 20, it appears that they took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. But that's describing one weekend. It's not necessarily a prescriptive comment on whether uh, a church could not do the Lord's Supper every week. On the other hand, I think it would be impossible to say that weekly communion is scripturally wrong. I mean, you have some hints of weekly communion happening in the New Testament. I also think it's very wrong-headed to argue that weekly communion would water it down, it'd make it stale, it'd become too routine, it would lose its specialness if we did it every week. We don't make that kind of argument with almost anything else. You don't say to your wife, Honey, I'm going to tell you I love you every three years. Just once, every three years. But when I do, you're really going to like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to mean something. So I don't just spit out I love yous, you know. I'm going to get you flowers once every three decades. Because when I do, you'll really be thankful. It'll mean something then. No. We don't do that in the church either. We don't say, hey, let's keep singing special and we'll only do it once a quarter. Or let's do preaching just once a month. We want to keep sermons special. No, we, we, we do it regularly. But on the other hand, back to the New Testament evidence, it's not clear that the Lord's Supper must be done weekly. And so I think God has given freedom to the church uh, to decide how often they do it. Right now, monthly works for us. In the future, I can imagine the possibility that it's weekly. Um, that, that's not something we would change lightly, but 
but I sure wouldn't be opposed to it because it would lose its specialness or because I think it is incompatible with the New Testament. For me right now, a much bigger pastoral issue than how frequently DSC does the Lord's Supper is whether you're making every effort to come when we do celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let me ask you, is is this a priority for you? Are you missing out? Are you missing out on a good opportunity to grow in your love for and confidence in and even explanation of the gospel? Is it an optional part of your Christian life? Is it there on your calendar? I pray that it is. We should do it regularly. That's clear from 1 Corinthians 11. Now let's talk about the seventh thing, the preparation for the Lord's Supper. Paul says there should be some examination here. Apparently there's some abuse of the Lord's Supper going on in Corinth. You can see in verse 20 something of what this is. He says, when you come together, you're not actually eating the Lord's Supper. You think that you are, but you're not. Here's why. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So scholars seem to agree that what's going on here is that the rich are coming to pig out at the Lord's Supper. They're bringing their, you know, half a rack of lamb or something like that. The poor have nothing and the rich aren't sharing. And so what was already probably a division in the church, a sentiment of rivalry and distinction, class distinction, is now manifesting itself in this Love feast meal. I mean, it's the, the thing that's supposed to drive them together and help unify them is being used by rich snobs to be the very means, to be an instrument for cutting up the church. So it's humiliating the poor, Paul says in verse 22. In verse 18, he says it's putting a major division in the church. It's a very strong word he uses there. So he says they're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner in verse 27. No small thing. It might sound like they just barely didn't pass the test or they're not worthy. Those who partake in an unworthy manner, though, he says in verse 27, are guilty of the blood and body of Christ. He says in verse 29, they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. They think that they're doing something right Religious, perhaps getting them somewhere with God. And every sip and every bite instead is adding judgment upon them. And some, he says, were powerfully, miraculously, unusually disciplined by the Lord. God apparently made some ill, some weak. Look at verse 30. And some have died. Like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who lied about how much they gave to the church, and God just took them out. So there are some here, apparently, who treated the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and in doing so, God protected them, actually. He, in mercy, disciplined them by taking them out. Like you would say to a a kid at a birthday party who's just so wild, this is only going to get worse, not better, we're going home, right? God sometimes apparently says to his children, enough, you're going home. He takes them home. 
Now, we don't know when that happens, so it's dangerous to go around to funerals and go, I bet that was one of those. (laughs) Acts chapter 5. No, don't do that. But we know, at least in this case, we know at least the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, that the Lord did it, which shows us something, the seriousness of the issue. So he says we should examine ourselves. We should, verse 31, judge ourselves truly. What's that mean? It means to see if we be in the faith, for starters, to make sure that we're Christians. But we should also examine ourselves to see our need once again as Christians. We don't examine ourselves to see if we've been good enough in the last month in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. And you got a B plus. Good job on devotions last month. You're good. C minus, questionable. No. No, you see, this is a test that in a sense you're not supposed to pass. None of us have been good enough last month to partake of the Lord's Supper of our own doing. We still stand only on his body and his blood. We have no other righteousness but his body and his blood. The Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 16th century, describes this so well. It asks the question, who can come to the Lord's table? Answer, those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that the remaining infirmity is covered by the suffering and death of Christ who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to amend their life. But the impenitent and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. Impenitent, those who aren't seeing their need anymore. Hypocrites, those who are self-righteous and don't see their need anymore. The needy are those who should run to the table. The Westminster larger catechism written in the 17th century it asks whether someone who struggles with doubt should partake maybe that's you today maybe you'd say you're a christian but you keep wrestling with doubt it's been years wrestling with the same thing well it answers the question whether you should partake today he this person is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he might be further strengthened. So we should also examine our attitude towards this meal. Is there a possibility that you're treating this meal ritualistically? It's something you do, so you don't have any problem with the do this part of it. You just don't get it. Are you treating it mystically where you think, I don't know what's happening, but I know I put this in and I feel different. That's called the placebo effect. Okay, there's nothing in it. You can't, you can't treat it mystically. It doesn't do anything apart from faith. Or perhaps you're treating it apathetically. Yeah, if I could ball it up and throw it away, I would. I don't care. I'll do it, but... Eh. Or are you perhaps approaching it thoughtlessly, not doing the mental, prayerful, spiritual work before and during a Lord's Supper service. Well, verse 29 says we should eat and drink discerning his body. Discern it. 
The eighth thing we see is the spirit of the Lord's Supper. The spirit of the Supper. It's weighty and free, paradoxically. It's on the one hand, reading between the lines of this chapter here, on the one hand, weighty, right? I mean, God has taken people out for messing with this. And yet it's so free. This is my body given for you. It's done. It was given for you for the remission of sins. They're buried in the depths of the sea. His law written on our hearts. It's the cup of the new covenant. He drank that cup for us. The cup of God's wrath, the Passover, has finally been fulfilled. The lamb has come. The blood was good. And the angel of death will not get us. Weighty and free. We should remember that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Ninth thing we can see here is there's unity in the Lord's Supper. There's oneness about the Lord's Supper. Remember, the Corinthians had a lack of oneness, and that's really what gets Paul to talk so much about the Lord's Supper in this context, which tells us that there is a very important horizontal aspect to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to just turn over there, one page probably in your Bible talks also about the Lord's Supper, and it shows us that it's vertical and it's horizontal. It relates to God and it relates to others. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a sharing or participation in the blood of Christ? That's vertical. It's communion with God. The bread that we break, is it not a participation or sharing in the body of Christ? That's horizontal. That's one another's. There's one bread, and we who are many, we all partake of one bread. So we have different loaves around here this morning. Each table has their own loaf. But each table has a whole loaf, I believe. We usually do that, and we aim to do that. It's to symbolize what 1 Corinthians 10 is saying. We got one bread, Jesus. We're all grabbing from this same loaf, the same saving hope. There's oneness there. And I think that means, at least it's implied, this is a meal to be done with others, other Christians. It's to be done as a church. Paul said, when you come together as a church, do this. He said in verse 33, when you come together to eat, which I think means doing the Lord's Supper without the church, on a camping trip, as a family, in your living room, I think you miss no small part of its purpose. It has a church purpose. It has a horizontal aim, not just vertical. So this morning, we have come together. And when we partake, we should partake in a consciously corporate way. We say that from time to time in our Lord's Supper services. It means we should notice each other. We should smile at each other. We should pat each other on the back. We're not alone. This isn't an elevator. Let's all look at the door. No one talk, right? We are in him together. We are one in him. We share the same bread, the bread of life, who is Jesus. And that binds us together far more than any sports team, any uh, similar economic or cultural or ethnic background does. There's one more. The last thing here is there's hope in the Lord's Supper, hope of his return. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
He's coming back. In a sense, this is a temporary meal. It makes us look ahead. It makes us hungry for more. It makes us anticipating his return and seeing him face to face. So maybe this isn't such a simple thing after all, this Lord's Supper. Maybe instead it's a rich, multi-layered symbol for us. We need it. And we need like a gem to hold it up and turn it around and enjoy the many different facets of its truth. Father, we praise you for the finality of the cross. Jesus said it is finished and he died and he truly died. And when he died, we believe he died in our place. He died as a substitute sacrifice. So we have no other plea, no other claim, Lord, to lay before you except that's enough that Jesus died in our place. We thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your work through your spirit in assurance and joy and comfort and guidance. We thank you for the church. We thank you, Lord, that among your many gifts to the church, you've given us this remembrance meal with so much rich symbolism buried within such simple elements. We pray now as we partake that you be glorified to use these simple elements, Lord, to speak to us in rich and powerful ways and that we would be reminded that we have already received Christ, partaken of him, tasted of your goodness and grace. And now, Lord, you will do us good. You have done us good. And this meal, Lord, is among many things a remembrance that you will continue to do us good until our Savior returns. We pray in his strong and saving name. Amen.